Okay, if you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We will be focusing on verse 15, but I will read portions from verse 10 through 15 to get our flow. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word to us through His Apostle Paul. Father, I ask for that ongoing, faithful grace that You grant to us, Your church, Your people, and to us who are pastors, preachers, and teachers, that You this morning would help me be faithful to the meaning of this text, unfold it, apply it, help us see it, And by Your Spirit, help us love what we see and be changed by it. To our joy. To our reveling in this beautiful Gospel of peace. And to the glory of Your name. Amen. If you're walking on ice in Antarctica, proper footwear is extremely important. Because if you don't have ice shoes on with, with, with metal spikes at the bottom in order to grip the ice, you will be slipping and falling all over the place. And the Apostle Paul's call for us this morning is, don't slip. You're in a war. Don't be falling down on your face concerning the Gospel. But instead, put on the right shoes. Footwear is extremely important if you're running a marathon. Better choose wisely. If you're playing baseball, different kind of shoe, but you better have them on or you'll be sliding when you don't want to. If you're golfing, shoes for it. If you're in a battle, hand-to-hand combat, there are shoes. And that's what Paul is referring to in his day in the first century. Roman soldiers wore these boot-like sandals because they would wrap them around the ankles and they had a thick sole on them and there were nails protruding down out of the sole in order that they would not slip or have grip in hand-to-hand combat so that when they are engaged, they just don't lose it, go down, and now you're dead. 
That's what Paul has in his head when he uses the analogy. And the context for these shoes for Paul is clearly warfare, a battle. Standing, not falling. Standing against, he says, the schemes of the devil, the enemy. So here's the flow now. Just feel the flow. I'll bring it together very slowly of verse 15 now. Believer, stand therefore, how? By, and here's, here's the literal translation, by shoeing your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And so are you ready? That's the question. Another, are, you, are you prepared with the gospel of peace? Do you really know it? Do you know it so well that you know when it is being attacked? Twisted. Added to. Just tweaked a little bit. Or very slyly ignored. Verse 15 calls every believer to know it. As shoes for your feet, put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. Are you ready to stand against the schemes of the devil? That's the large point of the entire text. By shoeing your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. So first, what does he mean by that word there? Readiness. The readiness of the gospel. Does he mean be ready to go out and evangelize, do missions... Preach the gospel outward because that's where your feet would carry you. Is that what he means? In the sense that your feet is what takes you with the gospel. As Paul essentially said that in Romans 10. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and now he quotes Isaiah 57. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So is that what he means? Evangelize. Some commentators think he does. I don't think that's what he means here. Because of the context. The context is not about get your feet so you can go outward. The context is get your feet so they don't move, that they stand and you get the right kind of footwear on in the battle. Standing firm against. In other words, so that you are not knocked backward, knocked over. Paul is referring up to this point 
in these, the armor so far, to defensive armor against offensive attacks coming at you as a believer or as the church. So, rather than meaning in this text, preach the gospel and evangelism and missions, which is utterly biblical, but here, in this passage, he means be ready. Be prepared to stand against the onslaughts of the evil forces. How? By being firmly footed and grounded in the gospel of peace. That's what he means by the readiness or the preparedness. Secondly, what does he mean by the gospel of peace? He means the gospel. In other words, gospel means good news. He means the good news that God purchased the peace treaty between Himself and sinners. He purchased peace by the death of His Son. In order to freely give that peace with Himself, the Creator, to sinners who believe in Jesus. That's what he means by the gospel of peace. As Paul has already said in this letter back in chapter 2, we who have come to faith in Christ, we were not always there. We were in darkness following the course of this world, our, our sinful natures, even in religiosity. We could have been doing that like Paul. And he says we were all Children of wrath. God was not at peace with Joe LeMay. His impending future judgment day of holy, perfect condemnation hung over me, or hung over the Apostle Paul. But then Paul goes on to say, though that's true, but God. Being rich in mercy. Changed. Made us alive. Together with Him. Why? Because God being rich in the mercy of sending His Son took away His perfect, holy, just wrath against us in His Son pointed out upon Him. And thus receives sinners to love forever and at total peace. Who? Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes has been reconciled. No more enmity. No more separation from a good relationship with God, but reconciled to Him freely. By His grace, God is now at peace with the believing sinner. It's the gospel of peace. And so, Paul says, we are to do battle. Peace, peace, battle. Ooh, sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? We are to do battle 
by being prepared with the gospel of peace. Now that can get really tricky. Because as he has made clear, the great enemy is Satan and demonic forces behind stuff that goes on in this world. And that can be tricky because Satan loves for the church in the world to do infighting over trivial matters and then cause each other to turn, blow each other up. And Paul has already written in this letter, if you remember in chapter 4, seek church, seek the unity of the Spirit in the glue or the bond of being at peace with, with one another. Okay, but there are many things. Here's the key that are peripheral and not central to the gospel of peace. And those peripheral things and differences, we who love Christ in differing denominations and local churches and within the local church should not shoot and divide and separate over those things. Like what Paul deals with in Romans 14, some just couldn't eat particular foods because it would have been sinful according to their conscience. And others could. Some could only treat Saturday, the Sabbath, a particular way. Others said, I don't really care. And Paul says, those are more peripheral issues and no one's wrong necessarily in that case. In the sense of the person who has to do it, they don't want to offend their conscience. And Paul's advice there is to receive and to accept one another with your differences over the more peripheral issues of conscience as opposed to core doctrinal issues of the gospel of peace. Okay? So there's the peripheral. But, he does say here, always be ready to do battle against Satan and doctrines of demons that attack the very essence of the gospel of peace. Like attacks on the atonement of Jesus Christ. What did the cross do? Not peripheral. Like attacks that we saw in the sermon last week on Christ Jesus' perfect human righteousness imputed to the believer. And this has been attacked within evangelicalism in the last couple of decades over the so-called theological term the new perspective. Not peripheral over attacks on the deity of Jesus. 
Over attacks on, no, 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 I agree with all that, but, and you have to have faith in Christ, but now, to your faith, you must add on top of that good works, and together, they are what will get you saved. Not peripheral. So we're called to stand firm against the attacks that come against the gospel. How? By knowing it. By being prepared with the gospel of peace. So that when they come, you smell it quickly. You see it clearly. Because you know the real. When you don't know the real, you're radically opened to deception. So, let me start this way then, on standing against attacks of the gospel, I just want to make this clear first. There is a sense in which the gospel of Jesus is simple. Not simplistic, but it is simple. It is easy enough for kids to understand and be saved by it. To grasp it. It's simple where illiterate tribal people in the, in the Amazon jungle could hear it, grasp it, and be saved by it. History is filled with examples. And as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians actually says that it is often the wise, educated, of this world who turn their nose up at the gospel of salvation in Christ who suffered and died as a bloody sacrifice to put away sin. Ha! Not to do it. And instead, he says, God chooses to open the eyes in the hearing of the gospel to the simple, to the babes. That's not just pretty women, that's kids. <laughs> right, babe? Where is she not even in here? Right. The scum of the earth is how Paul put it. And why? So that no one may boast in themselves. So, John 3.16. See the signs at all the football games and all that? It's simple. And it's simply stated, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal Life. It's simple. And I hope everyone in this room hears it. Recite it to yourself over and over and think about the words. And believe. But now, if we as Christians make a a jump from what I have said so far, it goes something like this. Well, if that's true, and that's the gospel, and that's simple, then we should actually never strive to go further than just learning to quote the words of John 3.16. Just stop. Don't tell me what you think it means. Please don't do that. 
quote the words, everyone who agrees with it, raise your hand in the world. Okay? Every church agree? Got, got it, got it. Okay. Everyone who doesn't agree, raise your hand. Okay. You who don't agree, you're out. You're not Christians. You who agree, you're in. Let's just keep it there and make it simple. In other words, let's not think about the meaning of John 3.16. Don't go deep with that. Because if you do, then we might find disagreements coming up. The idea that we should just keep it simple in the sense of keep it at the level of just really not thinking. Keep it simplistic and on that level would be a travesty. Because it would be in direct disobedience to much of the New Testament to do so. So, let me start. Yes, on one level, the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is simple. Absolutely. On another level, it is profound. It is deep. It has contours that are laid out in the New Testament. And it's clear there. In other words, once you start asking, okay, I believe in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, meaning in condemnation and judgment, the context is clear, but have eternal life. So you ask, how is that possible? How is it that God could forgive sins in giving His Son? Once you do that, you ask that question, division is inevitable. Welcome to the real world, adults. We're to be grown-ups as Christians. And the importance of what happened in the atonement and how John 3.16 is true and how it is possible God can forgive sins, if you believe in His Son, that gets at the core of the atonement and that, if need be, is worth dividing over. Or other examples in history. Back in the 300s, about 1,700 years ago and during that 4th century, it was worth dividing over the doctrine of Christ. When there were fellow Jesus-lover preachers and pastors preaching and then teaching more and more clearly that Jesus was not co-equal with God the Father, but He was created. That battle that ensued was necessary and needful and it was a shoeing of the feet with the readiness of the Gospel of peace. It was also necessary and worth standing against those who denied that there is one God who exists in three eternal, co-equal persons. It was right and righteous to draw the line in the sand and to condemn those who proclaimed that Jesus was not truly and actually fully human. To shoe the feet with the Gospel is necessary. And do battle. Because Satan 
hates the gospel and he is always attacking it from various angles. He has never stopped. This began not in the 300s. It began during Paul's ministry. Peter's ministry. In the very beginnings of the church, Satan was active. During Paul's lifetime, Christian preachers were going behind his church plants and infiltrating them, proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. Died on a cross for sins, was raised from the dead. Oh, Paul forgot to, he forgot to tell you a couple other things, and we're going to add them to it. And Paul responds because many of his churches in all these cities were actually giving ear to these quote-unquote Christian preachers. And this is how he responds in the beginning of his letter to the Galatian churches. His most angry letter that we have. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting God. Come on, Paul. Get over it. They believe John 3.16. They would not deny the truth of that. All they're teaching is you can't just remain non-Jewish. You must add Jewish works of culture and circumcision and the foods you eat and don't in order to finally be saved. That's all they're saying, Paul. His response, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting God who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of these teachers who trouble you and they want to tweak, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, I, Paul, other apostles come back to you, Galatian churches, or even an angel from heaven, not from Satan, but from heaven, would come to you and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we already preached to you, let them be eternally damned. So if they believe in John C. 3.16, according to Paul, but you buy their twist on the Gospel that yes, Jesus saves you if you add your own works. Paul says, You've deserted God. The Apostle John wrote his entire first epistle here in the New Testament in order to condemn Christian teachers who were proclaiming Jesus. He's Savior. But clearly, he wasn't truly human. He's God. <laughs> Not truly and his whole point is, church, kick them out. Be warned. 
flee. And therefore now in chapter 6 of Ephesians, in shoeing our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, his point is in order to defend the gospel against attacks that arise within the religious world all the time, we must be clear in our understanding of the gospel so that the counterfeit is easily seen. Right? Isn't that how they, I don't know what they do nowadays with all these markers in the bank for money, but bank tellers were trained to handle, just go in the back room before, and handle $100 bills over and over and over again. So they're so familiar with $100 bills that when one that is so close looks to it and it puts it in their hand, they know something's kooky here. Something's wrong. It's counterfeit. Because they know what's true so well. 150 years ago, Pastor, preacher, C.H. Spurgeon in England wrote this. And, and, and I'm quoting it to bring together two things. It is the gospel of peace that we war with. He said, The church of Christ is continually presented under the figure of an army. Yet, its captain is the Prince of Peace. Its object is the establishment of peace. And its soldiers are men of peaceful disposition. The spirit of war is at the extremely opposite point to the spirit of the Gospel. Yet, nevertheless, the church on earth has, and until the second coming of Jesus, must be the church militant, the church armed, the church warring. And why is this? Because truth could not be truth in this world if it were not a warring thing. And we should at once suspect that it were, and we should at once suspect that it were not true if error were friends with it. The spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lies. So, go out on a limb. Let me just give a few examples of where we need to have our shoes on prepared with the truth of the gospel of peace against attacks on the gospel. And I mean, just during my very short tenure as a Christian, these are some of the battles. First, back in the 1980s and in the 1990s, there was a teaching, it's still around, and it, it was becoming ubiquitous everywhere on the Christian radio waves and 
books that essentially was saying Jesus is Savior and He can save people and He saves them this way. People that come and affirm and agree with the content of the Gospel that Christ died and Christ rose for sins. And so you can have Jesus as the Savior of your soul without ever having Him as the Lord of your life. The teaching separated. There's a distinction between the faith that saves and the fruit of that faith, which is Jesus as Lord. But it was clearly separating saving faith from any change of life or obedience to Christ. It was saying you can be saved by Jesus without ever coming to repentance of your sins. So, question then. If we, the church, are to be shooed with the readiness of the gospel of peace, are we to say to all of those churches and pastors and guys preaching this on the radio and writing books, are we to say, no big deal. We all hold up John 3.16. Or, was general, I'm using army terms here, was the general, John MacArthur, right in standing and destroying the deception of this teaching within the church world through his public ministry in the local church and over thousands of radio uh, airways and books and doing it for numbers of years? Someone should say yes. Okay. Okay. See why? Because he, look, if it is true, here's the gospel that we are saved by our trust in what Christ did for us in the gospel, by faith alone, apart from any good works that we do. But the faith that does save is not alone but it will have attending evidences called fruit of a changed life which is in the direction, not perfectly, but of obedience to Christ and of repentance from sin. If that is true, then the church must stand against such a doctrine, against the schemes of the devil's attacks on the gospel peace, particularly because it comforts many. Gives them comfort that they're okay as they're on their way to hell. Another example. The prosperity gospel. When it is in Constantly to today, and I was engulfed in it in my early Christianity, as it goes out, constantly preaching idolatry. Which means essentially this. That Jesus, He is not the goal. He's the means to your real desires of worldly pleasures. 
and money and stuff and health. And not only that, here's what Christianity is about. You can create your own reality by releasing the, the impersonal electricity or, or power of faith through your words. And Jesus came to show us how to work the system. And they'll preach Things from the gospel all the time to show you how Jesus taught us how to manipulate the system and tap into the power of faith. He taught us how to use positive confession in order to say, what do you really want? And now, confess it. And claim it. And then go on. Don't use negative terms. It would undo that. Use positive ones. And it will finally, you will finally bring it into Existence. Okay. Is that the gospel that you believe? Is that the same Jesus that you believe in? Should believers then who are prepared or ready with the gospel of clarity No, no, no. It's this and it's not that. This is what it is. The true Gospel. Should we go on being silent? Or should we take up the whole armor of God and do battle? One final one. See, we are called to stand. It's deceptions. And they don't just come like what I just laid out there. These blatant, clear proclamations. You can have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. Or the craziness of the word of faith, prosperity gospel. But we are to stand against the mild, the seemingly innocent changes to the gospel and to the church that the gospel is meant to create, that has been the attack of the seeker-sensitive church growth movement over the last three to four decades. Unlike the Apostle Paul as our model, this movement purposefully has softened the offense of the Gospel in order to make it taste better to the culture. Because the culture out there who aren't in your church yet are customers. And you want customers to frequent your joint, to buy your product. And so its philosophy is to get people into the church and to like Jesus. And so how do you get customers? Well, you might as well well, go to those who are really good at it and have proved it. Corporate America, Madison Avenue, marketing firms, and you use their techniques. But... 
okay, I know that person. I've talked to them personally. Who, who, that's exactly what he and that group is doing over here. And I ask them questions about Jesus. What do you really believe about the atonement of Christ and sin and what happened? And they, they say they believe it all. Maybe they do. But what they do is how they approach it. And they're saying essentially this. Even if, yes, all that's true. Okay? All that clarity of gospel is true. But we, the marketeers, must not be up front on Sunday morning preaching it. Preaching sin, death, and impending judgment. And that Christ is crucified, bloody on the cross. And that was God doing it to Him, pouring out His wrath against sin. We, we could sit on Sunday morning because we got customers out there. And we would be implicating our customers as ugly sinners who need utter grace. And they might turn away if we got them into the door. And they'll turn away quickly. And they won't buy our product of Give Jesus a chance. And after all, I'm still being them. Even the Apostle Paul knew, okay, he knew that if you just straightforward with the message of the gospel, it often doesn't work. We're Americans, and America is about. Practice. Does it work? Work for what? Well, their goal is clear. You mix it with, if I can get you to like Jesus, then I got this idea, you're going to go to heaven, and so let's figure out how we can get more people to just do that. That works. You got more people. That's our goal. So Paul knew that if you're straightforward with the gospel, many people will stumble over that because of their pride and arrogance in religion. And he knew that many others then would also just scoff. It's foolish. It's stupid. And that doesn't work. And so our strategy should be modeled more after Coca-Cola because they're successful. They've got billions. Well, not of customers, but they sell billions of Coke cans in bottles. How do they do it? Well, I bet you Coca-Cola sells their stuff with a different commercial today than they did 15 years ago. I bet 15, 20 years ago they didn't sell commercials with tattoos all over the body. They do now. They're smart. They're always knowing what? Where are people? We've got to know our customer. So what's the key then for the church? You find out what the customer would like. They're not coming to church. Let's ask them what would bring them to church. And so you send out surveys into the community and you ask them all these kinds of questions of what might bring them to church. What might they like? How would they come and buy your product? And the answers came flooding in and they come flooding in as churches still do this kind of a thing. They want upbeat, hip, short services on Sunday that particularly meet my, you've got to hear the words, my temporal, 
felt needs. That's what we want. We want you to tell us in church how to succeed in our marriages or our families or in business or in the workplace, how to budget our home. We want practical stuff. That's what we want. Give us five clear steps or seven steps to cope with this problem or that problem that we all experience in everyday real life. It would be very helpful if you had a 12-step program for every possible kind of need that you had that we can choose from that when we go through different problems of our lives. You know, it would be great if it were like a big mall and got all these programs or options of stores in which to pick from. Oh, oh, and, and, and yes, get rid of the boring old hymns. Get rid of the long Bible readings in church. And bring in stimulating contemporary music by highly skilled performers. I mean, we, we spend our afternoons and the weekend to go to a park and hear a concert. If you made it like that, that would be great. That's what we would want. Oh, but with the music and you do that, okay, just take out all those long, difficult theological terms and, and, and keep it light. And above all, that, that, that traditional part of the service where there, there's a person who stands up and he talks for a while, the, the sermon, okay, you've got to really cut that down short. I mean, you know, we, we can deal with that for 15, 20 minutes. But what we really don't want is we don't want to be preached at. We want a well-constructed humorous, gripping, touching stories. In other words, really good TED Talks on Sunday morning by skilled communicators. Don't ever go over the 25-minute barrier, though. And you know what might really be helpful... You know, more money comes in. We all come. You can have more money, so you you got you can use high tech stuff during the sermon. Even keeps you know, so our minds wandering. And you know, you can put a movie clip for three and a half minutes as the illustration instead of use your own words to do it. Put that up on the screen. That would be great. Oh, and uh, you know what? More people you got, you can get some actors in there to have live on stage dramas during the quote unquote sermon. That would be fantastic. But overall, please don't ever talk negatively about sin, the fear of God and judgment and the joy of Christ. Well, no, you can say that, but just don't put Him in context. Alright. So, seeker-sensitive church, the marketeers, what have they done and are doing is they redesign the message. Usually there's almost nothing blatantly heretical. Because there's a gift of being ambiguous that works in shallowness. So they redesign the message and they redesign the church around felt needs 
in these types of religious communities, yes, this is Joe's opinion, they cater to people who would be turned off to go meet in Lydia's house in the city of Philippi to sing a few hymns without any musical instrument and then hear Paul and his gang drone on about biblical text and the meaning of the future after life is far more important than any temporal felt needs you have right now. They would be bored to hear Paul saying, if you don't feel the gravity of your sin before a holy God and the impending judgment and doom that lay before every one of you here in Lydia's house, if you don't feel that and thus feel the beauty of the good news that God sent His Son in order that He, God, would pour out the wrath you deserved upon Him as your substitute and take it away that you may be granted eternal joy in God forever. So repent. Come to Him. No, they wouldn't want that. If they are really attracted to what I just laid out in the secret census church, they're not going to want I can go on and on with contemporary error that we need to have our shoes on of the gospel of peace and the clarity of it. But the point of this text this morning is if we're going to be prepared for battle by having our shoes of the gospel of peace on, then that means we need to never be bored with the gospel but to go deeper and deeper with the Gospel and the contours of the Gospel and the implications of the Gospel. That is to understand the Gospel clearly so that all these errors that say Gospel and look on the surface, they like Jesus, you'll spot a mile off because they're attacks their schemes of the devil. But now, as I close, I need to say this. Having said all that, putting on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace is not merely intellectual, but it happens first and foremost in your heart on your knees before the holy God see of the millions of fortunate kids to grow up in gospel clear churches who thus know intellectually the gospel that is not by itself shooing your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. First and foremost is your response 
to the offer of eternal life. Not, not generally, not because you know a doctrine, but to your soul, personally. It is for you to experience God's peace toward you in Jesus Christ because you're His. And that happens by sensing the truth of the depth of your own sin against God. And that you are a sinner. And then, the second step is that you respond in obeying the call to repent and to believe in Jesus personally. Some of the first public words Jesus said go like this from Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And so, the first thing is make sure you trust in Christ. His work, what He did, you do nothing but receive. It's, you just take it. Yes, thank you. That hand is called faith. And that's it. Embrace Him as the Lord and the Savior of your life who actually truly loves you more than you really love yourself because He is providing through His humanity that He took upon Himself and His death and His resurrection for your unending eternal happiness. That's what He offers to all who want it. To all who will believe. To all who will receive. To all who will embrace that free gift of forgiveness of sins and of Jesus' perfect humanity being put to your account forever before God. Simply stated, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever, anywhere, anytime in this world, whoever will believe in Him shall not perish in their sin, but they will have God's life, eternal life, forever. And for us, I've been a Christian for 30, what is it, six years now. All of us, let me plead with us, with this passage, shoe your feet every day. Shoe your feet with the preparation of the Gospel by preaching the Gospel to your soul. It never gets old. As we get older and we approach death, it's always closer each day. Oh, 
to, to pray and contemplate with your soul. What we heard last Sunday about Jesus is righteous and I don't have anything to present on my death. But I believe. Preach it to your soul. And trust me, the more you preach that to your soul and you live that, you, you, you won't be a cantankerous, argumentative person. But it is because of the preciousness of the Gospel that's so clear in the Scripture, but it's not laid only there. It's in your heart. You won't. Just let attacks on it go. Your heart and your head come together. So believe, preach it to yourselves, and enjoy that you are at peace with God and God with you. As Paul summarized it in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank You. As Paul put it in Romans 8, You did not spare Your own Son. But You gave Him. You sent Him. You delivered Him up on a cross for all of us who believe. And thus, it is impossible for you not to sovereignly and providentially now in the very brief life we live here and for all eternity give to us all things that we need because nothing shall ever separate us from your love for us that comes through and in Christ Jesus. May we revel in it for the rest of our lives to the glory of Your name. Amen.